If you got a Bible, turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to read um, verses 1 through verse 4 out of chapter 2 in the book of Hebrews. It's back there in the back. Uh, if you don't have it, just listen. Listen to the word of God today. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is living and active. I thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. I thank you that it can meet us directly where we're at, that there is not a heart that has gotten so cold that your word can't melt the heart of stone and lead it to a heart of repentance and revive it again and make that heart fall madly in love with you as the one who created them, the one who fathers them, the one who saves them, redeems them, restores them, and shows them what real life, true life actually is. So Jesus, today, uh, I know we're coming to a passage of scripture where we're encouraged to not drift, and we pray to you today acknowledging that whatever we have been doing, those of us who have gathered together around your word in this church today, this is an upstream endeavor. And so, Father, I pray uh, for a blessing. I pray for um, favor upon every soul under the sound of my voice at this very moment because I know and I believe you know they're taking steps to do things that are upstream. They're putting their self in front of your word today. And, Father, I pray because of that you would move me as far out of the way as I can, that you would honor an upstream uh, action by your children today as they come before your word. They, they could have been in it. it there was a high pollen count, but it is a beautiful day nonetheless right here. There's plenty of excuses or things that we could be doing other than being gathered around your word. But Jesus, I pray that they know that this right now for them is the best place on the planet earth to be because you're going to meet with them today. Not by anything that I say necessarily, Jesus, but by the word preached, the word preached, living and active for our lives today. We love you. We are so desperate in need of you. In your name, amen. Uh, if you're anything like me, you've had a time in your life where maybe you said one of these two phrases. How did I even get here? Or how did it get like this? Usually this is kind of when things almost hit like a bottom kind of moment. Sometimes this is like metaphorically speaking of like, how did I get here? Like, how did I get here in this, this habit? Or how did I get here in this, this reality? Sometimes it's like practical, like, how did I get here? Some of you got stories and you're like, how did I get here? I'm eating dinner with Elton John. It's 1973 and I'm, what's going on? Like, how did I get here? You know, this is wild. This is weird. And some of our how do I get here things are, are things that we would have never, ever imagined that we would ever be in the circumstance or situation, but we find in ourselves this, this thing that goes, what in the world? How did I get from where I thought I would be to this moment right here? How did it get like this? This is usually the questions that, that people are asking the moment right before you're signing a divorce paper. Like, how did it get here? I never in a million years when I was standing and signing the, the marriage paper thought that I would be signing another piece of paper 
ending the covenant promise that I made. How did I get to this place where I used to be a functioning alcoholic and now I can't function without it? How did I get to this place where I'm so incredibly lonely, but I feel like I've burned every bridge with every person I would invite back into my life, so I don't really have anybody else I could reach out to because I've I've burned and I've, I've, I've used and I've manipulated so many people. I'm just here by myself. My kids don't want to have anything to do with me anymore. I try to call them and they go to voicemail. I try to text them and I get, you know, little to no reply. How did it get like this? How did I get here? How did this happen? How did it get to the place where I would rather look at someone on a screen than go and be with my actual spouse? How did it get to this place? How did I get to this place where where I'm so in debt, where it really looks like my only solution is to just run away? How did I get here? See, the reason we ask ourselves those questions is because where we were and where we eventually are or got to, it happened so slowly and it happened so methodically that we didn't even realize it was happening. That's why we say these kind of questions like, how did it get here? How did this happen? It happened because of what we're going to talk about today, drift. Drift. Drift is to be carried away slowly, so slowly that you don't even realize it's happening. See, Jesus is speaking through the author of the book of Hebrews, and he knows the propensity that we all will have as people who are seeing and savoring who Jesus is, but there's this undercurrent to the world that's going to try to pull us away from this new life that we would have in Christ back to the old way of who we were. That's why if you're tracking with us in the book of Hebrews, the author spends all of chapter 1 just describing Jesus. He launches in, says, in the years past, God has spoken to us through prophets. In this final days, in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Yes, God has a son, and his name is Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God. He's going to create the whole entire world. He's going to inherit the whole entire world. And guess what? He's far greater than angels. He spends all of chapter 1 just showing us this grand way that Christ is truer, Christ is greater. In all of chapter 1, there's not one single time where the author tells us anything to do. He just tells us everything about who Christ is. And then we hit our passage today. We hit this next section of chapter 2. And finally, he begins to go, okay, in light of all that, and that's why the therefore is therefore, is connecting back to chapter 1. Essentially, what he's getting ready to do in chapter 2 is expound on what he said in chapter 1. He said, Christ is God. To have seen Christ is to have seen the Father. He and the Father are one. Christ is God. He is far above angels. Don't downgrade Jesus to something that he is not. He is far above. He is high and lifted up. And then he goes to verse, um, this next passage right here in chapter 2. He says, okay, because of that, here's what we need to lean into. And remember, He's talking to people, and you have something, even though you're not Jewish, even though you're not a Hebrew, you have things in common with these people. They were people who had started out in this life of Christ. They had started out in this new faith endeavor that was being a disciple of Christ, but they were being tempted and pulled to downgrade Jesus into something that he wasn't so that they could continue to fit in in culture, so that they could not be persecuted as bad as maybe it would have been. They were continuing to to be tempted to when life got hard to let go of Christ and drift back into the way things used to be. And so he says to them, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. So let's talk about this idea of drift, this this concept of drift, because drifting is something that we are all going to face. 
Now, the reason we're all going to face this idea of drift is because for those of us who are Christians, we, we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Our flesh constantly wants to pull us away from the things of Christ. The world that we live in has this undercurrent that continues to want us to pull away from the things of God. And the reason that it does is because the world is kind of manipulated by our third enemy, probably the most critical one here, is Satan. So he manipulates the world to pull on our flesh that is fallen. And see, the thing about Satan that you need to understand is Satan loves the drift. See, He's not after you being someone who overdosed on prescription pain medication by the end of the week. He knows for many of you in this room, if he, if he showed you a handful of Oxycontin, most of you would go, no thanks, I'm good. But what he's much more after is you spending decades of your life addicted to having a really strong drink at the end of the workday. Continue to have that, continue to have that, maybe one, maybe two, who knows. And then you get in your you know, mid to late 50s and you get a back injury at work or you, you, know, you got a you know, sciatica that's acting up. And so you go to the doctor and he gives you some pretty strong medication. And you happen to one night kind of put both of those together and you realize, whoa, this is something. And like we laugh, but I'm telling you, this is, this is thousands upon thousands of people in our country's story. And they would have never thought, I'm going to be, you know, someone who's addicted to pills. But Satan doesn't, he's not starting out right here to day, day one of, of leading you to that. He just needs you to keep having some sort of substance. And he'll leverage something that happens in your life to allow you to continue to drift into a place that you never in a million years thought you would have gone. See, he is confident in the power of the drift. He's confident in the drift enough that he can turn a once on a special occasion drink into an overdose. He's not after you getting divorced by the end of the month either. But what he's more after is the drift. He's after you going into work and complaining about your spouse to a coworker who's of the opposite sex. Oh, my wife, she just doesn't. My husband, I wish he would. And then you go really far and say, oh, I wish my husband did that, that thing that you just saw another man do. I wish my wife did that, that thing that you just saw some other woman do, you just crack in that door. And that's all he's after. Because he knows. He, look, here's what you need to understand about Satan. He is so confident in his ability, and he is so confident in how jacked up your flesh is, that he can take an office and turn it into a hotel room. He's confident. He's extremely confident. He doesn't need to get you there by the end of the week. He's okay with it taking Weeks, months, years, because he's fine with the drift. He's not after your kids abandoning church altogether. He's not after your kids not wanting to have anything to do with Jesus when they become 18 plus and move on. He's much more after them waking up on a Sunday morning like today and going, hey, we're going to church today? And you're going, no, it's pretty out. We're going to, you know, we're going to go to the park, you know, we're going to go, we're going to go. You know, you know, I don't know, do what we do. I don't know what you people do on other Sunday mornings. I don't ever have, like, I don't know what else to do. Like, this is, this, I'm here. That's what I do. Or, oh, you know, it's raining. I'm tired. Whatever. See, he's, he, he is confident in his ability to take something that is optional for you and turn it into an afterthought for your kids. He's confident in his abilities to do that. That's why he wants us to drift. 
This is why the author of Hebrews jumps in here. He says, guys, we have to pay much more close attention to what we've heard unless we're going to drift away from it. So let's kind of piece this apart word by word. He says, we must pay much closer attention. I want to lean in this word pay. So when he talks about pay and he's talking about paying attention, we have to realize this about attention. Attention is an expendable resource. You do not have, contrary to popular belief, you do not have unlimited attention. All right, some of you have already stopped your attention that you're giving me. You're like, okay, you lost me. You know, you've already given up. And I don't, and like, here's this really sad kind of scary part is I feel like, and, and raise your hand if you believe me here, do you feel like Americans' attention is getting like longer and we're able to pay attention better or it's getting shorter? Raise your hand if you're like shorter, all right? Yeah, yeah, like if we were at like chimpanzee level of attention, we're like goldfish level of attention right now. Thank you, TikTok, way to go. We can't pay attention to anything. And, and realize it is a payment. So I believe what the author is after here when he's saying, hey, we've got to be people who actually pay attention to what we've heard. And it really is a payment. What he's after there is you cannot continue to pay and make the payment of your attention to the things of this world and hope to have any attention left to pay to Jesus and his word. If I pay all of it here to the things of this world, the trappings of this world, my finances, my kids, my life, the stupid things I see online, the things I veg out on on Netflix, all these things that are going on around me and may never even have an impact in my life. If I pay my attention to that and then I come to this place where I go, I wish I could just pay more attention to Jesus. The reality for many of you is you don't have any money, attention left to pay. You're broke because you paid all your attention to things that did not matter. They're actually pulling you further, further away from Jesus. This is why when I think he says pay attention, he's going to elaborate on this a little bit more in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3.12, and we'll get there eventually. I'm going to read it to you in the CSB because I love how the words are here. Um, he starts out with his idea of pay attention. He's like, watch out, like just boom, like right out of the gate. Watch out, brothers. Like, and again, Hebrews is this continual urging of this pastor who's writing to this group of people to pay attention to what's going on and don't let go, don't lose hope. Stay holding fast to this faith that you have. So he says, watch out, pay attention, brothers and sisters, that there won't be in you. Again, he's talking about something going on the inside of you because what's going on the inside leads to what's happening on the outside. There won't be in you any of an un, evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And then he starts to give us kind of the, the resource and the out and like what to do with this truth that we need to be able to watch out for this. He says, okay, here's how we help. We encourage each other. So what this means is you in and of yourself, little old you is not capable of fully paying attention the best way possible. This is why you need a church. This is why you need a small group. This is why you need to have relationships with other people who are following Christ because you cannot watch your back. You need believers in your life. You need people who can encourage you and challenge you and even sometimes rebuke you so that you can continue to fix your eyes at the people who can act as rumble strips in your life. Do you know what rumble strips are? Those things on the side of the road. All right, this is why we gotta pay attention because you know this. When, you, when you're reaching for something down on the floorboard on the passenger seat, where do you go? Rumble strip, all right? You need rumble strip friends, all right, that wake you up. They wake you up and go, hey, ooh, ooh, you don't need to do that. Don't, I saw that picture you liked. You better stop that. You know, I, I, saw, I heard, overheard that conversation. That's going to go south fast. We need those people. They need to be there for us, and we need to be there for them to encourage each other. What's that word say? Daily, all right, daily, daily. Some of you in this room, I, I love you, you're, you're this person. 
you are daily encouragers. If there's any like spiritual practice, I'd love to see the people of MCC just be known for is just being scandalously encouraging. Here's what I mean by that. Like so encouraging about people that we are talking positive and encouraging people and other people in the room are going, no, nah, they're not that good. Like, <laughs> like you're overselling them. Like, wouldn't it be good to be known as the guy who oversells people and not the guy who's always bashing somebody and believing the worst about them? I'd rather like people stand up at my funeral and be like, man, I don't, you know, <laughs> Trent may have got it wrong sometime, but doggone it, he believed the best about me. And I heard him gossip in a positive way more than I ever heard him gossip about something somebody got wrong. Daily. While it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. That's the lies. That's the, the, the fake stuff that we see that sin's deception is not necessarily just outright blatant lies. Sin's deception is that this is harmless. This really isn't sinful. It's just kind of a thing, so it's not a bad thing. No, anything that is hindering you from Christ is a bad thing, even despite the fact that it may be outright openly, it doesn't have to be outright blatantly vulgar and disgusting for it to be something that is deceiving you and causing you to fall away from the truth that's in Christ. Verse 14, for we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end. This is one of the things he continues to harp on in the book of Hebrews is hold firmly. Don't drift. Hold on firmly to the end, the reality that we had from the start. And I love this because I remember, man, look, we talk about these people who've been baptized recently. And today we're going to baptize another uh, beautiful little girl, part of our community group. Cannot wait. Piper, whoo, it's going to be awesome. Uh, so that's going to be awesome. We're going to baptize another little girl here. But if you baptize kids, you baptize adults, here's one of the things I can tell you. And this is what this verse I think is after here. The author of Hebrews knows that there's something special that happens in that moment where you like really put your hope and faith and trust in Christ. Like if we got up there and like we were up there in the baptistry after people came out of the water and like the person who leads our missions stuff here was like up there with a clipboard and they're like, okay, you just got baptized. Would you like to sign up to go to Africa? Like I guarantee <laughs> our, 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 our rates of like people signing up to go on mission trips. I don't know how they would follow through because life happens, but I guarantee we would have more people show up or at least say they wanted to do that than if we said like, you know, two months later, we have an interest meeting after church because there's something that happens in those moments where like faith is on fire. I'll do anything for Jesus. I'll go to the ends of the world. I'll go, I'll be whatever. We, we get there and we have that place where we have that reality of, of who we were in Christ, that truth that we were a wretched sinner, but he has now saved us, that we are in love with him. That reality of who we were in Christ from the start when we really put our faith and trust in him, he's saying, you've got to hold on to that. That first love feeling, those butterflies, like hold on to that because this world is going to try to dull. Satan's going to try to do everything he can to dull that as much as he possibly can so that you continue to drift and drift and drift away. So he says, pay much closer attention. Now, let's talk about attention for a second because this is what he's saying we have to pay. One of the principles I want you to understand, I believe the author gets this, what has your attention will eventually determine your direction. Say that again. What has your attention will eventually determine your direction. If I am focusing on this, this is what I'm giving my attention to, eventually it's going to get my direction. I'm going to begin to drift that way because that's where my attention is. We see this from cover to cover in Scripture. We see Adam and Eve, they're there in the garden. Snake slithers up. He starts to talk to Eve about this. You know, he's basically selling this fruit to Eve. You know, look how good this is, you know. You know, God didn't, you know, he didn't really, this man, he's holding out on you. If you eat this, you're going to be like him. 
and then there's this, there's this couple little passages where you can tell Eve has given her attention to the fruit. It talks about it was pleasing to the eyes and good for food. She's, she's given her attention. She's taken her attention off of anything else. She's probably even at this point, the snake's voice is drowned out in the background and she's just looking. Again, whose fruit is this? It's God's fruit. So it's not like those weird boxes of bad fruit that you guys can order online. Like It's like God's fruit. And I'm, I know it looks good. And she's just eyeing it. And she's giving her attention to it. At the same time, again, this is how Satan is still working. He gets your attention to go to the fruit. And then he starts talking to you about it. And then in combination with his lies and your flesh, you bite down. And usually, this is what usually happens a lot of times. You bite down and you pass around. Because there's always collateral damage when we drift. When we believe the lie over the truth. So what you need to understand is, again, your attention and what you give your attention to is eventually going to determine your direction. That's why he says to watch out. That's why he says pay close attention so to make sure that you are paying attention to the right things. And for our life, like in our day and age, this is where distractions play a huge role. Like most of us, you're distracted from the main things. And you get distracted all throughout the day. I think the world's, the, the main, number one like, main thing I feel like the world is trying to do is to distract us. Like Satan is not necessarily trying to get us to disobey God. He's just trying to get us distracted from God. If I can get you distracted from God, you're just going to continue to drift. You won't even realize you are drifting. You won't even realize that you're heading towards divorce. You won't even realize you're heading towards addiction. You won't even realize that you're heading towards bankruptcy. You won't realize those things because I've got you distracted with, with Kardashians and Marvel. And I've got you distracted with all these stupid things that are going on in life. I have you here so you don't realize where your feet are going. He wants us distracted. This is why he says, pay close attention to what you have heard. All right? Now, let's talk about this word heard for a second. Let's go to their original context. Track with me on this. At this given moment, you need to understand that the people there that are getting this letter, this this written out sermon, handwritten sermon from whoever this author is, They're getting this, and what they don't have is the entire Bible like you have it. This is written probably around A.D. 70, okay? So they don't have this yet. The the, the author's not passing these out when they get together, and and everybody reads your Bible. That's, That's not in here. So when he says, pay much closer attention to what you've heard, it's literally the things that they've heard. It's the word of mouth testimony about who Jesus is. And remember, this is A.D. 70. So it's very likely, especially for these people knowing that they're Hebrews, that they have heard maybe even word of mouth, maybe even in the same room from people who are Jesus's actual apostles. Like Peter, James, John, James wasn't one of the apostles, but James was Jesus' brother. All of these guys are known, historians account for us. These are men, these three primarily who were the ministers and pastors and expositors of who Jesus was to the people there, they were primarily doing that to the Hebrew Jewish people. Paul was primarily doing that to the Gentiles. 
So it's not a giant stretch of the imagination to know that these people have potentially had eyewitness testimony from people who walked where Jesus walked, people who denied him, people who saw him right there crucified, people who were there sitting there listening to the Sermon on the Mount. These people are likely some of the ones testifying and giving proof positive that this guy, Jesus, I saw him resurrect. I was one of the people there who showed up. I saw him dead. I know he was dead, dead. I saw him in the tomb. He was in there for three days, and then he showed up. And they're giving them this testimony. And what's crazy here is, we're going to read about this in a second. The author, Jesus, inspired by whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, is essentially saying to them, you have to pay much more closer attention to what you've heard. And he's going to go on to in the back half of verse 2, and then 3, and then 4, to make it very clear that they're going to be accountable, held accountable to what they did with what they heard. Now, that should make you a little nervous. Here's why. They were just going off of word of mouth. You have the living word bound in leather or digitized on your phone in an app where you can get 473 different translations of it. Okay? If they were going to be held accountable to something that they couldn't pull out of their front pocket and start reading, they were being held accountable for things that were maybe like letters that were passed around. And, 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 and here, this is what's wild too, it's probably about half of the people could actually read. And so we're in a, in a very educated society and who has the whole canon of the word of God, cover to cover. We have 66 books that is his word. And, and he says, you guys are going to be accountable. And they're held accountable just from like some spoken word stuff that they were passed down, some letters that are going and getting circulated around, and eyewitness testimonies. We have the whole canon of God's word. That's why he's saying, you've got to pay attention to this. And for us, where we sit right here, this is really, really good news because we have all of it. God is not going to, there's no book that's getting added to the back half of this. We have everything that God ever wanted to say to us, and it culminates with Jesus, the living, active word of God. And so he says, pay close attention to what you've heard. Primarily, what he means when he says this is pay attention to what you've heard about Jesus. Because he's talking to people who had heard about God. He's talking to people who had heard about Yahweh. He's talking to people that knew about Daniel and the lions. And he's talking to people about knew, knew about Abraham and Isaac and Noah. And he's talking to people who know about God. But what he's trying to help them understand is the culmination and, and where we see the blazing center of the glory of God and all the questions you ever had about God finally and finished answered is there in the person of Jesus. And to, to, to not know and put faith and trust in Jesus is to miss out on the Father God. He's trying to help them know that. He's saying... If you continue to just say, I want the Hebrew life, you will miss out on life. That if you want real life, and this is the same for us, if you want real life, it is not the Hebrew life, it is not the American life, it is the gospel life. It is the only true life. And this is what he's pointing them to. That's why he says, pay much closer attention to what you've heard. And here's why. Because if I'm not paying attention, I will drift away from it. I would drift away from it. And you know this and you felt this. The reality is in life, when it comes to drifting, what do you have to do to drift spiritually? Nothing. <laughs> like drifting just happens. Again, there's this undercurrent to the world we live in. The world, and you guys already know, this is like the least profound thing I'll ever say. The world is not pulling you closer to Jesus. 
Like you can't just go, well, I'm just gonna, you know, start out and just be good. And, and here's what you know, like this is not just a, a Christian thing. This is just kind of a thing thing. Those of you who have been married, you've been married for a week and you realize what? Marriage is hard. You get married, you've been married for more than a week. You realize this is really hard. Nobody drifts into a good marriage. You don't drift into being a good parent. You don't drift into being a good employee. You don't drift into anything positive. Anything that is the stuff that we dream of in life, it all happens by working upstream. Because nothing in the world is going to take you drifting. You're not just going to wake up and get Father of the Year award. So he knows that to do nothing, to not pay attention, to neglect what we've heard about Christ is going to lead to drifting. He uses this nautical term that kind of implies like the true thing you really want is going to slip by. It's going to float away. And you're going to get caught in this current that is the world that we live in in tandem with your flesh and led by the spirit of evil and darkness. So I was trying to think about this idea of, of drifting and the truth that we live in a world that has this undercurrent. And I was reminded of, of something that I read uh, as I was going through this book. I don't know. I think you turn 35 and you just, you just start doing old person stuff. And um, <laughs> I was reminded back to the, the I didn't pay attention in, in, in American history, but I, I was really fascinated by the story of Lewis and Clark. And I wanted to dig back into that. And I started studying the story of Lewis and Clark. And one of the things that I didn't realize about the story of Lewis and Clark, I guess I missed this somehow in American history in high school, but Lewis and Clark when they set out, they're given this, this big dream by uh, George, uh, not George, uh, Thomas Jefferson. They're given this dream by Thomas Jefferson to go and like find a way. He just made the Louisiana Purchase, which is basically like uh, all the Midwest and then all the, uh, all the way to the West Coast. He basically says, we need to try to find a passageway from this spot to this spot. And so he gets these two guys. This is uh, Lewis and Clark, Meriwether Lewis and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, William Clark. Yeah. He gets these two guys and they're these brave adventurers to go on this journey. Now, what I had no idea of until I went back and I started researching this is their journey when they set out in May of, where was the year? 1804. May of 1804. They set out and they leave from St. Louis, Missouri on the Missouri River. I always thought like they're on this river and they're just on like this riverboat trip and they're just like on the river and they're just going downstream and they're just looking at all the stuff and they're like, okay, well, there's some Indians over there and look at those buffalo. Aren't those cool? And I just think that that's what's happening. But when I started reading the book and actually doing the research, they're going upstream. The Missouri River, they're, they're literally flowing on the Missouri River, going upstream to the dream that Thomas Jefferson has called them to follow. And man, I was like, that's, that's it. That's the best thing I could ever show you that illustrates where many of us are at in our Christian walk. See, like I said, you get baptized and you have these upstream dreams about what your faith is gonna look like. You're like, oh man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the best parent in the world. I'm gonna pray with my kids every single night and I'm gonna be reading them Bible stories and they're gonna get baptized as soon as they turn seven and blah, blah, blah. And I'm gonna be on mission trips every other weekend. And we get all these dreams about what our walk with God, I'm gonna be witnessing to people at work and all these habits and hangups and, and hurts from my past. Those are all just gonna kind of fade away because I start following Jesus. And look, I'm not... I'm not poo-pooing on any of those things. Those are, those are great dreams to have and hopes to have in Christ. But the problem is, is many of us, uh, like Lewis and Clark, we have these upstream dreams of, of what is going to happen. But unlike them, we have downstream habits. 
Our habits do not lead to those things. We wake up in the morning and we grab devices. Vices. Devices. We grab vice devices. Vices. We grab those vices first thing in the morning instead of giving God the first fruits of our time. And, and, and when we get, and then we sit back and we kind of wonder, we, and we start asking the questions that I started at the very beginning of how did I get like this? Well, I had all these upstream dreams for my marriage. I had all these upstream dreams for my parenting. I had all these upstream dreams for what my career would do and the impact I'd be able to make through the money I make. I had these upstream dreams, but I had downstream habits. And because I had downstream habits, I ended up here. And there's this disconnect. And that's where, that, again, that's where Satan wants us to, to get so completely distracted. Lewis and Clark, when they set out on this journey, it says, they're, again, they're going upstream, which is wild. They're going upstream. There's a current to the Missouri River. They're going upstream. They're getting poisoned snakes. They're getting poison ivy. Some of you guys are like totally done right there. Like calamine lotion is not invented at the time. Neither is anti-venom. Uh, they're getting dysentery, which is a, a really worse version of diarrhea. Um, so, like, those are my three bugaboos right there, poison snakes, poison ivy, diarrhea. Like, I'm out. Um, I love adventure, but I'm done right there. Um, they're getting, a, you know, there, there's some peaceful na- Native Americans. There's some that want to kill them. Um, there's all sorts of things going wrong in this journey. And to combat all of that, they're also having to do this while going upstream. What was fascinating as I was uh, reminded and going back and kind of looking through this this past week, if you go through the journals that they wrote over the course of this two-year endeavor as they're trying to find passage and get to the West Coast, there's three words that continue to occur in the journal. They're the three most repeated words in the journal. We proceeded on. We proceeded on. We proceeded on. It's like they knew, like, hey, uh, poison snakes, dysentery, we're going to have people on the team die. We're, we're going to have uh, diseases. We're, we're going to have uh, bad hygiene. Uh, toothaches were terrible. That was one of the things I was like, oh, that's really bad. So but as they're going through this, here's what they know. We're going to proceed on. We're just going to keep going. We're going to keep going because we have to have this proceeding on right here in the moment habit that matches with our upstream dream. We've been called to a great mission. We've been called to a great purpose. And the reason we're even here today talking about William and Clark is because they proceeded on and refused to let the Missouri River drift them right back to where they started. And so my hope is that you realize that that is um, very much where we're at today. That if we continue to be people who just are okay with downstream or downstream habits, we're just going to drift. Maybe you're sitting here going, okay, what does it mean to like live this upstream life? To live a life that goes against the current. What does the Bible call that? Well, friend, upstream life is nothing new. It's nothing special. The upstream life is called discipleship. That's upstream life. Discipleship. And it's no crazy coincidence that they are bound within the word of disciple is discipline because it's not a riverboat gambling trip. It's not a cruise. It's not a lazy river where you just sit back and see where it takes you. It's a disciple ship. It's a discipline ship. It's an upstream endeavor. This is why Jesus, I mean, he made this super clear. 
I've, this is like my fourth week in a row showing you guys this first, but I'm going to continue to put this in front of our face as a church. He says, if anybody wants to come after me, like if anybody wants to be my disciple, if anybody wants to come after me to go where I'm going to the, front, the face of the Father, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, my needs, my way, my want, the things my attention craves, the ways I want to be passive and not engage with the things of this world. Let me deny myself, everything that makes me who I am outside of Jesus. Let me deny all of that. Take up my cross. That's, me. that's my way of saying, that's his way of saying, die to yourself. Kill your flesh. Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's a disciplined journey of following Jesus and it is always upstream. The author goes from here and we'll round out our time with these last um, two and a half verses, verse two and three right there in our passage in Hebrews. He says something that at first glance can kind of be confusing because we get this idea of pay close attention to what you've heard so you don't drift from it. We get that. But then he starts jumping back into the whole angel stuff and we're like, man, I thought we were done with angels. Listen, he says in verse two and three, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape? Okay, now we're starting to, that's okay. Now we're talking warning words. Okay. How do we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The author of Hebrews is doing, uh, this happens a lot in Hebrew scripture. This is why we know this, this guy's Jewish. Oftentimes in Hebrew scriptures, the authors do what's called a, a lesser than to greater than argument to prove the point. Many times they'll use something that's less and then talk about something greater. It's their way of saying, if God would do this with this thing that's not as important, he's obviously going to do the same thing, if not way more, with this new thing here that is much more important. It's a lesser than to greater than argument. And this is what's happening right here. Let me explain it to you as fast as I can. For since the message declared, to, declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What he's talking about there, and you go back and you read your story through when God gives the law, which was the governing force, the governing rules and tenets for his people. When he gives the law in the book of Leviticus, go all the way back, back there, gives his rules and regulations for his Hebrew people, his chosen group of people. The way he does that is he uses angels as what they're called. He uses angels as the messenger of his laws. So there on the Mount Sinai, God gives the law through angels to Moses. All right, track with me. This is not super complicated. The angels are the one who deliver that on behalf of God. So the angels deliver the word of God to the people of God. Now what he's saying here is if when the angels deliver the word of God to the people of God, they received just retribution and punishment when they disobeyed that, okay? So angels deliver the word of God to the people of God. They disobey. God is fully okay to bring punishment and discipline on them. That's the lesser then. Now he's moving to the greater then when he says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What he's saying here is, if God gave his word through angels to the people of God, and now God in his son has came and been the word to the people of God, if you neglected the word that was delivered from angels and suffered, how much more will we suffer if we neglect the word of God given by the son of God, not by angels? That's the point he's making here. And so he's saying, 
God hasn't sent some intermediate, you know, lower than him thing. God has showed up flesh and blood in the person of Jesus, and he's delivered this. That's why he says, how are you going to escape if you neglect this? And that's, not, that's, a, that's a rhetorical question that everybody reading this goes, there's no escape. If I don't hear and heed the message and the truth of who Jesus is, if I don't pay attention and see and savor that he truly is the son of God dying on the cross for my sin so that through faith and surrender to him, I can have new life. If I don't see and surrender my life to that, I will not escape the coming judgment and punishment. I'm on my own. Which leads us to where we're at right now. Is that who you're looking to? Is Jesus the one that you're looking to, to go, Jesus, you are my only way out. And I don't want to neglect the salvation that you've given me. I want to surrender my life fully to the salvation you've given me. Because if I was going to be held accountable to this law that I couldn't live up to anyway, and now you've come in and you've said you have completed the law, you lived according to the law that I could never live according to, you gave your life for me, and though I still cannot live according to the law, though I still cannot live a perfect sinless life, you gave your perfect sinless life for me so that now in you I can have this hope, I can have this freedom, I can have this promise that there is now an anchor for my soul in you that is secured to the Father because you secured it, you tied the knots, you know what you're doing way better than I do. He's, he's making that invitation to you today to say, Jesus, you are the only way and my attention, my affection is going to you. I am tired of drifting through this life and watching golden opportunity, golden opportunity slip away. And my prayer today is that you wouldn't neglect that. My prayer today, too, is that maybe you would ask some hard questions to yourself. The hard question I want you to ask is this. How are we drifting? And, uh, you know, I'm not doing marriage series anymore, but from time to time, I feel like the Holy Spirit has been impressing some stuff specifically to some certain aspects of our faith family here. And I want to lean specifically into this one right here and talk to married people for a second. Nobody starts out hoping that one day they'll fall out of love. And hear me, like, really nobody falls out of love either. You drift. And one of the prayers, me and Jessica don't get everything right, but one of the prayers we continue to pray over and over again for our marriage, and it's rooted out of the Proverbs, is God, give us the wisdom to see danger coming and take refuge and not ignore when we do see a warning sign. And what happens with a lot of, a lot of marriages, a lot of, a lot of good Christian marriages, is we never took time, and I, I'm, I'm with you in this, this is a question I'm going to be asking to, to my spouse, fellas, so don't feel like, oh, Trent, you know, you're just you know, telling us what to do, you know, because he's done it for 14 years now. No, I'm with you, fellas. But to go and ask this question, how are we drifting? Look, here's the, the most stupid, prideful thing you could do is go, we're not drifting, man. We had date night Tuesday. We're not drifting. No, shut up. Yes, you are. Like, <laughs> yes, you are. You're drifting. Because that's the current you're in. And until you are the bride of Christ there with him, the groom, down here on planet Earth with bride and groom, you're always going to be drifting. There's always going to be a pull. There's always going to be a current. And so you got to pause and go, hey, how are we drifting? 
and be ready to humbly, cautiously, remembering that you have twice as many ears than you have a tongue, enter into a gospel-centered conversation with your spouse. I'm telling you, this is a marriage-saving question. And if you're here today and you're like, man, where was this advice like five years ago? I would just say to you that if three days wasn't too late for God to move, then five years ago isn't either. And he can still do things that you never would imagine he could do because that's the kind of God he is. And I believe that. And so my hope and my prayer is that you realize and understand that, like I said earlier, like there is so much on the line. We're getting ready to baptize somebody who is nine, I believe. Uh, raise your hand if you're in this room and, and, and you've put your faith and hope in Christ and you did it before you turned 18. All right, look around. Uh, leave them up, leave them up, please leave them up, please leave them up. You, you put your faith and trust in and you did that before you turned 18. Look around, please. All right, put them down. This is the reason we put such an influence and such an emphasis as a church on family ministry. And this is why we wanna partner with parents so that they can come to this place where you have a healthy God-honoring marriage. And, I, and again, it worked in my life, it's worked in many kids' life, but I'm telling you, the best, the, the best chance, not the only chance, please don't hear me saying the only chance, but the best chance your kids and my kids have of raising their hand at some point and, and saying, I have accepted Christ and I did that before I turned 18. Your kids and my kids, the best chance they have at raising their hands and saying that was them is with a healthy marriage at home, a God-honoring marriage at home. It's not, please, single people in the room, do not hear me saying that is the only way. It's part of what the church exists for. It's part of how God is working in your life. He's got a unique calling on your life, and I know it's different. I know it's not easy. But the best chance is a God-honoring mom and a God-honoring spirit-filled father who are in partnership with the local church, show their kid the love of Jesus, and they find him at a young age, and they cling tight to him all of their life, and they spend it never having to ask this question in high school when they wake up at a party where the police show up and go, how did I get here? Where they come knock on your doorstep in college and say, hey, I got, I got, I got kicked out because they found out I was selling Adderall. I'm not saying that we can't recover after all these things, but the prayer I have for my boys, and I hope you have for your kids, is that they don't have a drift season. Like, what am I, it's a weird prayer, but one of my recurring prayers for my boys, it's like, I hope their testimonies are stupid boring. Just the boringest testimony. Like, I, I just grew up in church. I just love Jesus. And, you know, we, we went and I love Jesus with all my heart. Like, and I, I'm, whatever I do, I'm just going to do it for Jesus. And, you know, we just always went to church. I just always love Jesus. Like, I don't even remember a time where, you know, again, they're going to have their struggles. They're going to have their hangups. They're going to have things that they're going to go through. But like, I'm praying it's, it, it's not the ones that we write movies about. And, and 
And again, I love those stories. I love the testimony of how God can change. And again, that's what we love. We, like, we love that reality that God can restore the most broken and, and painful and just hopeless looking situations. We love that. <laughs> but, but to quote one of our elders uh, in, in a really hard conversation that we were having with somebody else, he just says, you know, all that really hard, painful, broken stuff is, is kind of avoidable too, right? <laughs> and he, he's an accountant, so we gave him a lot of grace for, for saying But he, it was kind of his way of saying like, you know, it doesn't have to be hard. <laughs> like, it's choose your hard, honestly. Like, is marriage hard? Yeah. But I, 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 I'm in one. So you say it's getting kind of serious. Yeah. Um, I'm in one. And it's, it's not easy. But I'm telling you, I would trade my marriage problems 10 times out of 10 for my divorced friend's problems. Hard is hard. Whichever way you want to shake it. And so my hope and my prayer is that, that we're gospel people and realize this is an upstream endeavor that is discipleship. But it is worth it. And when we drift, others are going to drift behind us. And my prayer is that we would be people who lead the way, that we would encourage each other, that we, when we see somebody drifting downstream behind us, we would be the first to reach out and throw them a lifeline in the name of Christ because that's what the church is here for. Getting ready to receive communion and then I sing a song and then see a little girl give her whole life to Christ and celebrate like crazy when that happens. Uh, One of the things I love about what we're getting ready to see is you're seeing... Brittany Rutledge in the water. Brittany Rutledge started out as a volunteer here, uh, eventually came on staff here, and all through that course of time was a volunteer. Most of that course of time was just a good old regular volunteer like anybody in this room can be, but was pouring into Piper's life. The primary spiritual influence that she's made on Piper's life were not probably the years where she was paid and on staff here at MCC. They came during the years where she was a volunteer. And there in the water with Piper, it's gonna be her mom and the person who's had, as far as church goes, some of the primary spiritual influence on her life. And that's really what the church is all about, guys. As you receive communion, I pray you ask yourself, this, uh, ask Jesus this question when you receive communion. How am I drifting from you? Just Listen. Not overcomplicated. How have I been drifting from you? And just listen. And then go upstream however he leads you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. It's living and active. It's sharper than anything I could say or do. And so I pray you move through what was said today and what your Holy Spirit inspired today and you would do the things that only you can do. And let us hold on to hope, Jesus. Our hope's not in what we can do. Our hope is in what you have done. That's what communion is all about. What is done, done at the cross, over and finished. So I pray you move in us. Show us where we're drifting. And give us the surrender to go upstream with you.